restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment. To cry, to confide in a friend, to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to be in control falls away. Where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. And in my walk-in, we have the conversations you don't hear anywhere else. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm El Simone Scott. Welcome to the walk-in. Hey Elle, it's Alexis Nicole, aka Black Forger, aka that girl who keeps singing about plants on TikTok. Oh man, I feel like I should have some like 90s R&B playing in the background right now, like a real 90s voicemail. Anyway, I digress. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm going to tell you exactly what my parents did to make me uh, end up eating plants off the ground like I do. And I hope you don't mind. I'm going to bring you some of my new pine cone jam to try. It sounds weird, but it's good. I promise. I'm on my way. I will see you soon. Goodbye. I'm so excited to have this very special person in the walk-in with me today. Her name is Alexis Nicole Nelson. She's a self-taught forager who lives just outside of Columbus, Ohio. She spends most of her free time searching and gathering for food and researching edible plants. But more importantly, she's made the conscious, righteous, and just generous decision to share with us on TikTok. She's kind of an overnight TikTok sensation, wouldn't you say, Alexis? Oh my gosh, do I have to? (laughs) (laughs) You don't, I'm going to say it for you. We have Alexis in the walk-in today. We're going to talk about foraging. We're going to talk about being Black in all the spaces and then a whole bunch of other things. Welcome to the walk-in, Alexis Nicole. Thank you so much for having me, Al. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, I'm a little older. I'm of, I'm of the 40s and I don't TikTok much. I don't tick the talk very much. So when I saw your name and I, you know, had to do my due diligence and do some research, I was completely floored and just excited because as a person, a veteran in the food space, I would say, I've met a lot of foragers and none of them look like you or us, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about when the tick hit the oh. fan. That's oh. that's what I, I want to hear about this moment. Uh-huh. Like one day you you're just a you're just a posting your content like the rest mm-hmm. of us in the world. Mm-hmm. You go to bed, you wake up a superstar. How tell us your secrets, Sensei. <laughs> tell us. I, I made my personal TikTok because at Bark they were like, we need a TikTok page. And I was like, well, I don't know how that works, but there's a New York Times article about it. So I guess I better figure it out. (laughs) And I wanted to mess up on the page that doesn't cut my checks and doesn't give me health insurance. That's right. You want to practice somewhere else. I want to practice. Exactly. So I made my own little account and I was making these videos Honestly, just trying to stay up on the trends because like trending activities and dances and hashtags and sounds are huge on TikTok. But I always felt like I was seven steps behind, um, probably because I am not in Gen Z and I do have a job to do. That means I can't just be on TikTok for a large portion of the day as much as I wish I could. Hello. And I had one video go viral before I started doing foraging things. 
Oh. And it's very embarrassing. It was during the the Democratic primaries. And these two kids made this like vibey song. And the lyrics were, President Joe Biden, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. The lyrics were, please don't make me vote for Joe Biden. I did vote for him. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was just vibing to it. And I woke up to having 300,000 views. Oh, my goodness. The tiniest light bulb went off and I was like, well, maybe if I just, if I just vibe as the children say, and I'm just myself in my videos, instead of constantly trying to copy off of what everyone else is doing, maybe there's something to it. Fast forward to March and the shutdown happened and everyone was nervous, myself included. And a big thing for a lot of my friends was going to the grocery store. Everyone was just like, what can we do? What can we touch? What can we not touch? Do I need to be masked? Do I need gloves? And so no one knew what to do to stay safe. And so I made a one-off video. Hey, I know you're scared to go to the grocery store. Me too. Here are five plants I know you can find in your neighborhood that are edible that you can use to stretch your groceries a little bit longer. Girl, that in and of itself, is that's a selling headline. And it popped off. I looked away. I <laughs> looked at it the next day. And it was like, oh, 40,000. Weird. Looks at it the next day. Oh, 80,000? Weird. And I had already had a foraging Instagram. But it was very, like, nice photography. High contrast above the food shots. The people who followed me on my Instagram prior to me posting my videos, I didn't even tell people what I looked like. I was kind of nervous because my handle was already Black Forager. I was like, ooh, that's already incendiary and spicy enough. (laughs) I don't need to remind them a second time that I'm Black. Right, right. (laughs) Because it's such a white space. Foraging is such a white space because a lot of it now is very much tied up in privilege. Do you own land to forage on? Do you have friends who are willing to have you forage on your land? Will a cop or a park ranger not stop you while you are out foraging? foraging. And so I started making these videos. And by the time we got to summer, I had already hit like 100,000 followers, which I was like, oh, this is absolutely bonkers. This is absolutely insane. This is going to stop any day now, any day now. But it gave me an excuse to kind of show off the processes behind these crazy fun foods that I previously only got to show people a final product of. Sure. And for me, half of the journey is the journey like getting to that finished product. It's great when you have something pretty and nice and tasty at the end, but it's so fun getting there and video let me show those steps. And I do not know. Your guess is as good as mine. I do not know why people (laughs) keep following me to listen to me yell about plants, but I'm excited that everyone's here. I mean, it's pretty indicative of, I think, the shift that happened with, you know, Black, Brown, and Indigenous people during the pandemic. I mean, and maybe also just kind of like humanity overall, thinking about how we used to source food, you know, like a lot of cities didn't have access to things that they normally had, right? Like you couldn't get just chicken breast or... Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, toilet paper, like we were at a point where our basic needs were threatened, you know, like and I'm going to call them basic because I'm in a space of privilege and access. Right. Because they're not basic for everyone. But for us, 
our basic needs were no longer accessible to us and we were forced to realize a different day-to-day lifestyle, right? It was a real reckoning. I think for the first time for a lot of people, how spread out the chain of food is, Mm -hmm. like how far things have to move to get to you in a grocery store. Yes. I think that was the first time that a lot of folks had that highlighted. It's a very out of sight, out of mind kind of dealio. But when you pause and think about it, you're like, oh, you're right. Oranges don't grow in Ohio. Where are these Mm -hmm. coming (laughs) from? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, people are really realizing this, this true cause and effect of like, us and earth, right? Um, I'll have to say, honestly, I definitely tipped my toe into the planting, gardening more last year than I have in many years. During pandemia, I was dealing with health issues and then I was experiencing compromised immune system. Also thinking about where my food is coming from and how I can use it as a healing tool. And I just started growing things and also became a part of a like a CSA share, you know, which was exciting because it was way more than I could eat because my mother does not eat anybody's vegetables at all. <laughs> like there are about three whole vegetables that she actually eats <laughs> out of 3,000. But being able to share that bounty with my friends and like, sharing recipes with them so they could know what to make with these things. It's a very warm and endearing feeling. So I can imagine like to be able to wake up to like a gabillion followers (laughs) just to be talking about actually what you've been doing your whole life and have grown to love. That must have felt really good. (laughs) I have to like pinch myself constantly because I keep not believing it. But food... Food builds communities. Like you were just speaking to it. Having that CSA box further connects you to farmers who are in your immediate area. And that their bounty then further connects you to your friends and your loved ones who you get to share that bounty with and, you know, have an open dialogue now with about those foods. Like all of human history has had communities centered around Food. I mean, agriculture is what led to us being able to have cities where we suddenly could have these humongous communities that stayed in one place. Whoa, wow. (laughs) And I think we'd gotten so deep into the like, yes, it is the dead of winter, but I want avocados from Mexico. I want oranges from the southern tip of Florida. I want pomegranates from overseas where we had taken a lot of the community and the connection out of food because it's easy to. And also because when you start thinking about it too hard, you might get a little, a little big sad about some things, um, but sometimes you need to get big sad from time to time because it helps you make better informed decisions. Yes, and be more appreciative, actually. Yeah. You know, little sadness can change your life. <laughs> First in, first out. Tell me about your growing up and what you were eating and loving as a kid. Oh my gosh. I was eating a little bit of everything, honestly. Um, 
so my mom hails from the Northeast. So we were always very seafood forward in our household. And then my dad, born and raised in Cincinnati, but his family and most of his food traditions came up from the South out of Mississippi, where a lot of his ancestors are from and a lot of his family still is. So it was kind of this fun melding of two different cuisines that I feel like don't interact as much as they necessarily should, like very New England and very Southern. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and on top of that, my dad is a super adventurous eater, like still a super adventurous eater. And so by the time I was eight, I was like eating escargot and just trying not to think too hard about (laughs) it. Um, Because that's a very big hurdle for a kid to get over. It is for a kid. It's very ambitious for a child. That's true. Like, here, sweetheart, try these snails. Try these snails. That (laughs) you play with outside in the garden. That you you fish out of the ocean sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And my dad was always really into baking. My mom was a director at Procter & Gamble when I was a kid, so she was often very busy and traveled a lot. So while she was gone... My dad and I would almost like compete with our past selves and make things for her to come home to, Um, like making cupcakes and big tiered layer cakes. And it was always sweets. My dad has a huge sweet tooth. And now subsequently, I also have a a (laughs) humongous sweet tooth. But we had this great balance in that my mom was always growing herbs, tomatoes, veggies in the backyard. So there was always, you know, fresh fruit and veggies cycling in and out of the house. Um, But also, my dad always had a pound cake on the dessert table. We had a a table dedicated to desserts in our kitchen. Let me tell you how that's not so odd. My mother has a sweet tooth also, and we have the stainless steel prep table in our kitchen. And it's loaded with all cookies, things I don't eat. I'm not a sweet Mm -hmm. toother at all, but it's loaded with all the sweet things. So I totally get it. I totally get it. I feel so seen. I'm so glad yes, that wasn't just It's our a household. safe space here with this sweet table, for sure. <laughs> so you had a good balance of baked sweet goods and then the things that were in the garden. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like the way that your mom was cooking or preparing foods when she was not traveling was almost to kind of counter the sweet tooth behavior that your dad had? Was she like, I'm going to give you all the healthy things because <laughs> I know when I'm gone for work, you and your dad are going to cake out. Yes, <laughs> except it would usually manifest itself in my mom telling my dad to cook something healthier because my dad was by and large like the cook. Oh, wow. Okay. In our household. My mom can throw down some stuff now too. But when I was growing up, um, <laughs> oh my God, mom, please don't ignore me or write me out of the will for this. But like sometimes my mom would be like, I'm making a Sunday breakfast. And my sister and I would be like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd immediately throw my little eight-year-old apron on and be like, I can help. I'm here to help. Do you want me to slow scramble some eggs? That is hilarious. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And the fact that you even knew to be slow scrambling eggs is pretty hilarious <laughs> to me right now. They sent me to culinary camp at eight years old. And that was where I first learned about cooking eggs low and slow and like the French style. So that is some very interesting information. Like, did you ask to go to culinary camp or they were just like, here's a summer activity, go to it? Um, It was a combo of both. My parents kept me busy during the summers all throughout my childhood. You can't get into trouble with your friends. If you're at camp. Exactly. 
Exactly. Okay, so knowing that your mom, you know, was such a green thumb person, I'm going to assume that is probably like where you kind of found this natural passion for foraging. How did you learn about and maybe it was more years of culinary camp, but how did you <laughs> how did you learn how to sub plants for like other conventional ingredients? I mean, I've read that you've done some really interesting things with panna cottas. Tell me about some of those dishes and how you learned or taught yourself if even, how to do these unconventional combinations, if you will. So I definitely think I started picking up on a lot of those tendencies from my mom in that like sometimes she would grow, you know, just like a set number of herbs and we'd have a recipe that would call for one and she'd be like, well, it's closely related to this one. We're just going to sub this in instead, like a, a dill frond for like a fennel frond, like a lot of little a little trades like that. And then growing up when I would come home from school, I was still in like elementary school, maybe beginning of my time in junior high, I always wanted fun gourmet after school snacks, but it would just be like me (laughs) in the kitchen an 11 year old being like, well, what do we have here to use? One day I really, really wanted Chex Mix and we didn't have any Chex Mix in the house. But I was like, but we have all of these savory cereals and we have butter and we have these spices. I know these aren't the spices that are normally in Chex Mix, but what if I just like melted the butter and then tossed the cereal in it and then tossed it in these spices and then popped it into the oven. And I was like, I feel like more things can be applied to this, but for the time being, I'm only passionate about Chex Mix. So... (laughs) Growing up, I was always thinking kind of creatively about foods when I was making them. I know, that's right. Tell me about the pine needle cookies. (gasps) Oh my God. I love the pine needle cookies. How was that recipe born? Please tell me. I'm curious. So that was very much born from a lemon shortbreads exist in our a generally, you know, celebrated dessert in the realm of cookies. I feel like everyone's had a shortbread. A lot of people have had lemon shortbreads before. And I knew in my mind that because of their vitamin C content, pines, your edible conifers in general have a very lemony, citrusy zing to them, uh, along with having this kind of deep resinousness uh, that you don't necessarily find in the citrus. So I, it was the dead of winter and I was trying to find something worthwhile to make a TikTok about. And sometimes I just will walk my neighborhood, just looking at all of the plants, uh, looking for inspiration. And I came across a giant white pine tree and was like, "Mm, I know what I can do right now. Thank you, evergreen trees, for still having your needles in the middle of December. So I went and I harvested a bunch of the fresh needles, blended them with sugar, like gave it a taste to make sure it was as bright and poppy as I expected it to be. And I just pulled a vegan shortbread recipe, did a little bit of math for the extra moisture in the needles, And it worked. I was just as surprised as the next person. I was like, something has to surely go wrong. (laughs) The the, like resin in this needles will surely throw something off. And the only thing that the resin in those needles threw off was my spice grinder. Oh, wow. I can imagine. You're talking about this so matter-of-factly when, in fact, it is so mind-blowing that you walk out of your house and see a pine tree and you're like, cookies. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) That's very interesting. It just 
It doesn't happen that way for the rest of us. I'm sorry to say. I, I wish it did. I think my culinary language or voice could be so much bigger if I could become more comfortable stepping out of the kitchen to source ingredients. And I think that was one of the things that really grabbed me about you on TikTok, just the boldness that you express, the ownership with which you move around the earth, that was amazing to just see. Like, oh my whoa, God. it's like Punky Brewster meets Bob Vila meets Rachel Ray meets Carla Hall. Oh, I will take each and every single one of those. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think I was just at this perfect formative point when my mom completely just like accidentally, very matter-of-factly herself introduced me to a couple of the wild edible weeds growing in our backyard when I was little. One of my earliest memories is helping her in the garden. So while we were out there, my mom would quiz me on certain plants. And I think a lot like with learning a language from a very young age, when you start learning any kind of knowledge from a young age, you are connecting synapses in your brain and you are making sense visually of information, auditorially of information, olfactorily, you know, with your sense of smell in a way that we find it a little harder to do as adults. And so I just happened to be a five-year-old. My mom was like, oh yeah, you see that grass that looks different from the rest of the grass? I'm like, oh, well, now that you pointed out, I do see that grass that looks different (laughs) from the rest of the grass. And she breaks it and hands it to me to smell. And it smells overwhelmingly of onions and garlic. And she's just like, yeah, you know how we use chives sometimes? You know, you can use this in the kitchen too. And for me, that was so incredibly mind-blowing because I watched my mom put all of this time, effort, blood, sweat, tears, water into her garden for some of these veggies to grow them on purpose. And I'm like, and you're telling me that there's just food on accident too? Yes. I was like, why aren't we talking about this more? That's pretty amazing to make that connection. Even at a young age, you know, I know it was definitely becoming part of your vocabulary. But like, yes, food on purpose and then food by nature. Food that we don't even intend actually exists. I can imagine that just blew your little mind. (laughs) Luckily, I went to like a very, very small and I use hippy dippy in the most loving way possible elementary school where they would... One, we had like 45 minutes of unstructured recess in the woods every single day. And our teachers would like introduce us to plants too. That's where I learned about eating honeysuckle flowers and that the flowers were safe, but that the berries in the fall were not, which introduced me to this concept that sometimes some parts of a plant are good. Some parts of a plant, maybe not good for eating, but possibly good for other purposes or good for something other than humans to be eating. We had a mint plant at that elementary school, and every day we were allowed to take one mint leaf to eat during recess to teach us moderation and to teach us that you can't just strip natural resources of everything that they have to offer you because that's not being very future-focused and that's not being very respectful of your surroundings. And I think just having a bunch of those experiences that I was lucky enough to have as a kid led to me just having a big old Rolodex of plants in the noggin. Well, I'm so glad. Okay, so I know that you've spoken about your college years, which were so great because they sound like my college years and probably like most collegiate years where you're really just trying to like pull together 
modest meals on even more modest, meager budgets. Were you using your plant knowledge then or were you just kind of doing like the rest of us in college and just trying to figure it out as best you can? I definitely fell away from it for a while. You know, part of it for me is when you're on a meal plan and your class schedule is stacked. I was in maybe too many credit hours my first year in college and you're running between classes, the things that you have time for and the things that you can like eat easily while sprinting across campus are like burritos, you know, the little handheld hash browns, bags of chips, you know, big old iced coffees with the whole works in it. And I kind of had to relearn how to eat in a way that made my body feel not gross towards the tail end of my time in college. But I did graduate and I worked a job that I hated, Mm -hmm. left it. Okay. And was like, you know what? I'm just going to have a job that's fun, that I enjoy and be broke and that'll be okay. And so I did. I worked at an ice cream shop. Making a little more than minimum wage. <laughs> <laughs> but you were also having ice cream. So like there's that. That's balance. Exactly. And I was working at Jenny's. And when you work there, you go through this training in which you taste test each of the seasonal flavors. And you learn about calling out the different parts of the flavor profile And you get to read up on, like, why certain flavors were paired together, even though they don't seem to make sense to, you know, a lot of us folks who, you know, kick it with mint chocolate chip, and that's as exciting as we get. yeah. And so a combo of being exposed to that during the workday and then just being poor as all get out, I started foraging more because I wanted to have nice food. I wanted more greenery to be brought into my meals, but I was not on like a bring a bundle of organic kale home from the grocery store budget yet at that point. So it became like, oh, well, I can afford these pasta noodles. You know what's a really nice lemony green curly dock. So I'm going to go out into my neighborhood and I'm going to forage this huge bundle of curly dock leaves from the green space down the street. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started being like, okay, okay, foraging is a means of like kind of returning to a better relationship with food. Because I had a kind of rough relationship with food for a little while. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Did you spend time learning about the things that kind of just like grew in your neighborhood or where you lived? Is that a huge part of one's foraging experience to like know where you are and what is common in your region? Oh, absolutely. I love saying that foraging is like a celebration of of past, present and place Mm. because it can be so crazy subjective. Like the neighborhood that we are renting in doesn't have the same flora makeup as the neighborhood we are about to move into, like the neighborhood that we just bought a house in. There are a lot of differences even just within the city of Columbus. So because I was, I will only reiterate this one more time, so broke. I was like walking and taking the bus everywhere. So you really get to know your green spaces because you're passing them on foot every single day. And without even realizing it, I had kind of built up a little internal grocery store in my head and knew where to find things and around the time of year that those things would come in and then out 
of season. And let me tell you, nothing fuels uh, creativity like need. That's right. Hello. That's how I even got into the culinary industry. I was really? at least full time. I was a social worker. And during the recession um, back in the early 2000s, my agency lost their funding and I was living on a budget. That was me. And I had to figure it out. And I was kind of moonlighting as a hostess at restaurants and It was the only place that I was working and I begged them for more hours, you know? So it was like, I loved the hospitality industry, but working in it was basically the call of the mother of necessity. Like, you need work and this is where you work. So get more of this. And that's where you are, you know? So I totally get that concept of just needing to do what you have to do with what you have as a means to survive. You know, maybe life is one big Foraging session. Ooh, you know, ooh, like we love a metaphor. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So at this point, you, you work at Jenny's um with this very unique sort of ice cream, which kind of clicks a button in your mind about merging um again these like unconventional flavor profiles, which I really love. I live for that. But soon you go into marketing. Is that how it happens? Your next major professional move is in marketing. So as stated previously, your girl was hungry and the holidays were coming up. So while I was still working at Jenny's, because I'm not kidding, I had such a great time working there and made so many great friends. But I was like, "Mm," I got a second job and it was in customer service at Bark, the, the company that makes BarkBox. And I was just having a great time bombing around, hanging out with dogs in the office every single day, ended up adopting a dog myself. And so since I had loved kind of making my own content social media-wise in college, and I was obsessed with BarkBox's presence on social media, their director of communications came to visit our Columbus office, and I... Bold and brave after having a spiked popsicle at a summer party we were hosting at the office, walked up to her and was like, I want to do what you do. (laughs) And she was like, hey, we love a go-getter. Send us some pieces of content and we'll get back to you. And I kid you not, two weeks later, I was freelancing for the social media marketing team. Wow. So then I was freelancing on top of the hours that I was already working and they really liked what I did. So they brought me on full time by the following holiday season. And now I manage that team, which is crazy. You better do it. <laughs> I love it. I still love a go-getter. It's very inspiring. And we have to. I believe in asking for what you want. Yes, we have to. Yes. My grandmother always used to say, a closed mouth. Don't get fed. Don't if get fed. If you don't exactly. open that mouth and say what you need and what you want, you will go without, right? Exactly. Yeah. So cheers to those of us who just grab the bull by the horns and say what we <laughs> want. I love it. I live for it. When Jim Cook founded Samuel Adams in 1984, he knew he had a good idea, a great beer, and a thick skin. But that didn't mean it was easy to get the business off the ground. I realized after a while that it took me 20 calls to get one customer. 
So I got 19 rejections for every one acceptance. So every time I got a rejection, I think, wow, I just got 120th of customer. I've only got 18 more to go. And that kept me going. It was like every rejection was 120th of an acceptance. That's good math. I love that. So when he did find success, Jim knew he wanted to help other entrepreneurs chasing their dreams too. That's how the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program was born. Since 2008, the program has helped thousands of passionate food and beverage craftspeople succeed so they can do what they love. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. You can also get info about upcoming events on Facebook at Brewing the American Dream or on Instagram at Sam Adams B-T-A-D. Walk-in listeners, let me tell you something. I'm a pretty tall person, but I've got these small hands. And it can be tough to find kitchen gear that's ergonomically correct for a small hand. That's why I love OXO products. They design beautiful tools for any hand size. I especially like their Good Grips V-Blade Mandolin Slicer. It feels safe to use, which is really what matters with a mandolin. And it's even easy to clean. Find your perfect kitchen tool at OXO.com. And just for walk-in listeners, OXO is offering a special discount. Just use code ATK15 for 15% off at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. The Wall Slide. Okay, so... I want to move into the next segment of the walk-in. It's called the wall slide. Um, the wall slide is, <laughs> you know, you giggle. So I think you kind of have an idea of what it means. Like you don't necessarily have to be in a walk-in to have a wall slide. It's just a really good place to do it. So no one has to watch you have a meltdown. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's those moments, right? Those moments that make us sit with ourselves and, and reevaluate life, you know? And it seemed to me that for you... It's kind of been how you view yourself as part of the history of foraging and then the long, deep traditions of BIPOC communities, right? And this could be a very layered conversation, just this part alone, but I would really like to talk about how foraging has become a predominantly white male genre of work and how it became so disconnected from the original indigenous people who do that as a way of life. Yeah, it it's wild because one of the reasons why I chose the Instagram handle that I did, Black Forager, um, now a little over two years ago, is because I didn't I didn't see other people who looked like me in the space, I was already following hundreds of foraging accounts. And I was just like, how does nary a single one of these big foraging accounts look even the littlest bit like me? That's wild. And my boss at work is also really into foraging and really into gardening. And we were talking about it. And she was the one who was like, you need to make your own page. And I was like, that's true. I keep annoying my friends and family talking about my weird plant food. She's like, no, you need to make your own page because I think people will just like seeing you talking about plants. 
Uh, so shout out to Stacy. You called that one, boo. <laughs> Thanks, Stacy. <laughs> you were correct. <laughs> so I eventually did find a couple other foragers of color, um, indie aficionados, who is mixed of Black and Indian heritage out in California. Eric of the Woods, who's kicking it in the Midwest with me. I love Eric of the Woods. Oh, me too. Yeah. Eric is the coolest. He slings pizzas and leads foraging classes. And it's just like such a talented chef. And so we started finding each other, but it definitely is indicative of a very purposeful culture shift about 150 years ago. There's an amazing Fordham Law Review article. If you Google Black Indigenous foraging laws, it will be the first thing that shows up, and it is a very worthwhile read. But it essentially dives into how a lot of white Southern slave owners, once their slaves were emancipated, lobbied very hard to have public land, have like access to public land cut off to folks for things like foraging, trapping, hunting, fishing, because they knew that a lot of Black folks, with knowledge passed down to them from a whole lot of Indigenous folks, they knew that Black folks were already filling out the really small meals they would get on the plantation by means of foraging. Like we say, nothing creates like need. Nothing creates like need. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of those Black folks, once emancipated, very much intended to make a livelihood out of those skills that they had accrued. Um, But that was not in the best interest of those folks who still owned those huge patches of land. With no one to toil over them. Exactly. Exactly. So what happens? Suddenly you can't forage on public land anymore. And if you are just freed, you're not a landowner. So... Public land was what you were hoping for. Additionally, trespass became a criminal offense instead of a civil offense. So instead of a little, you know, verbal slap on the wrist or maybe a small fine, you know, maybe you'd have to give up the money that you made selling the things you found that day. They could just put you in jail and make you work for free again. And so, of course, for a lot of Black folks... One, going out into nature by yourself became an extraordinary, I mean, already was a very dangerous activity, but became even more so because the legal ramifications got so much worse. So a lot of them were like, well, damn, I guess I'll go back and share crop and at least make some money from doing what I was doing previously. But it really put a lot of Black folks and also then a lot of Indigenous folks and poor white folks at a disadvantage in one fell swoop. And those laws very much had like an epicenter in the southern coastal states and then just kind of spread throughout the rest of the United States. And you'll see in the UK in some areas, foraging in public spaces is very much still allowed and the norm. That's the feeling about it that was brought over to the United States. We have not been a country that has always been keen on arresting people for picking dandelions in Central Park. And on top of that, in the late 1800s, you had this sudden commodification of green spaces. 
you had all of these rich white folks who were like, green spaces are how we relax in between our long days of disadvantage, you know, creating disadvantage for people beneath us to make our millions. We want these green spaces to look exactly the way that they do now. So we are going to parcel them off into national parks. I.e. Seneca Village and Central Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we are going to say, guess what, everybody? You can't do anything to these green spaces under the guise of keeping them pristine. But really, the idea of a pristine green space is a myth anyway, because people were already living there. There were people stewarding that land who developed a relationship with those spaces. And they were the reason why all of those parks looked the way that they did. All of those green spaces looked the way that they did. And, you know, it only took us a very casual 130, 140 years for some of the (laughs) national parks to be like, "Mm, maybe we messed up (laughs) when we did that all those many moons ago. And you have, you know, a bunch of indigenous folks, black folks standing there like, yes, mm -hmm, that is true. Except now the damage has been done. And we were alienated from all of these spaces very purposefully for generations upon generations. And now, I mean, it's rare to just see other Black folks out in nature. Yes, yes. And so that brings me right to here you are, a rare Black person in this digital and real life foraging space. This whole historical perspective that you laid out for us How has that directly impacted you in this work? Because I know it stings somewhere in your soul to have been someone who's had this exposure and education and knowledge and interest about this pretty much your whole life to then grow and learn about all of these restrictions and this treacherous historical perspective and experiences of life. Like, how has that impacted you directly? What has happened in your day-to-day that has made that manifest and make that important to even be talking about, to be a part of your narrative. Yeah. I I mean, it's manifested in a lot of ways that I think drive me to want to bring other Black folks out into these spaces. Literally one of the highlights probably of my entire life was a couple of weeks ago, I was gathering violets on my street and one of the teenagers on my street found out that I am that girl from TikTok and told all the rest of the kids on the street. <laughs> so they just flocked to the field and were like, what are you doing? What are you gathering those for? Can I help? Is this oh. the right one? And I was like, oh my God, let me talk to you about, yes, what I am gathering right now and what it is going to be used for. And have you removed this layer of plant blindness that I don't know if you would have had the opportunity to have removed, you know, soon or maybe even ever. So it definitely drives me to want to have those kinds of interactions, to want to get more people who look like me out into these spaces. But I also remember a lot of that history during a lot of rougher moments. I've spoken about it a little bit, but when I was first getting my footing on TikTok, If I had a dollar for every time someone tried to tag in a a white forager or a white botanist, white scientist to like fact check 
what it was I was saying as if their credentials were any stronger than mine. As if you could go to college and get a foraging degree, which I think you should be able to, but you cannot. (laughs) To the best of my knowledge, I think ethnobotany is the closest you can get. And that hurt. It took a very long time for me to be established enough that people didn't constantly feel the need to be like, Hank Green, is she right? Can you eat this? And I'm like... Hank Green is just trying to live his life in Montana. He doesn't know whether or not you can eat cattails. Don't bring him into this conversation. I love you, Hank Green. Your books are fantastic. Please don't hate me. (laughs) And it still happens uh, to this day. It happens a little bit less so, but I think it's, it's really only because of the following I've amassed. And I'm just in the mindset of that it never should have been happening in the first place. Yes, I agree. Additionally, I know I have to be so careful when I'm out foraging. I know the laws every which way before I go out into new spaces and even think about harvesting from them. Um, I make sure I have all of the necessary permits and that they're all up to date, knowing full well that a lot of my white counterparts are just like, I'm not going to get in trouble for like harvesting wild ginger in the state forest. And I'm just like, Mm, okay, but I might. Right. <laughs> yes. People hate seeing uh, Black people doing unidentifiable actions. Oh, It girl. makes them so nervous. So, <sighs> Say it for the people in the back. Mm, Why do mm, they hate it so much? So much. And it's like, it's not hurting you. It's not. It has nothing, nothing is to do with you at all whatsoever. Nothing. Not harm, not good. Like, nothing at all. Literally nothing. nothing. Yeah. Ah, okay. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up about (laughs) just forging in different spaces. I know that you were talking about like, you feel like you have a certain responsibility, you know, when you're educating in a public forum like TikTok about forging, you know, just like making sure that you're giving good information. How do you figure that out? Like, how do you draw the line or, you know, like, what are some of the things that you do to do checks and balances for yourselves? Your, what's your due diligence process when you're going to teach about something? Well, first off, I love leaning into invasive and introduced species a lot more than native species. I know native species have a lot of cachet, especially in the you know fancy restaurant industry. Don't get me started on ramps. I've done that rant probably more times (laughs) than anybody needed to hear. Um, But focusing on invasives and focusing on non-native plants that were brought here on purpose means that you can go out and forage a lot of these things without it having, you know, dire consequences and, you know, huge domino effects with all of the other flora and fauna in your area. So I'll tell people to harvest garlic mustard until the cows come home. Same thing with mugwort. Same thing with dandelions. Like there are some plants that are very much no-brainers. Then the next tier is I like making videos to kind of educate people on plants that maybe do need a little extra care. So if you are going to go out and you are going to forage, you know, making the best decision you possibly can and being as future-minded as you possibly can in your harvesting. But there are so many plants that I forage and I don't talk about because I'm just like, "Mm, nope, that's too many caveats. That's too many caveats. And I don't want people to get hurt. But 
With some plants, I'm just like, mm-mm. Cow parsnips for like people with sensitive skin are an issue, just like regular parsnips are an issue for people with sensitive skin. And oh my gosh, they're just, if there are too many hoops that I feel like I'd have to jump through, if I feel like the video would drag because I have to put like 17 caveats and addendums and PSs at the end, then I'm like, hey, 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 maybe this doesn't need to be a TikTok and it can just be a meal that I make for myself without a camera rolling. <laughs> that's it Alexis like sometimes just knowing when to be like you know what this one's for me and mm-hmm. this one's for the world you gotta just know that's dope and just imagine after knowing all of this saying all of this that there are people who still need you to justify your blackness in this industry be damned a moment in the walk-in With that said, one of my favorite parts of our conversation is called A Moment in the Walk-In. Sometimes it's a place where we get advice from our guests, but more importantly, I just like to really talk about like current and pressing issues that may be related to your life. And I know that as we kind of touched a little bit about often having to justify yourself or other people feeling like they need to validate you when that is not what you need. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about online bullying and what you do in your space to keep yourself safe as much as you can. Well, I, for starters, am not in the comments nearly as much as I used to be. Hello. Which part of me is very sad because of that, because I know that there are a ton, and I know that there are way more kind, curious considerate, caring people in the comments than there are trolls. But, you know, with the the super cool and funky way that the human brain is hardwired, period. And with me adding my depression and my anxiety on top of it, it's like, ooh, seeing a troll is a very good way for me to fixate on things that deserve neither my time nor my attention. Yes, exactly. So... I'll usually see a post off. I will answer the first 15, 20 comments that are underneath that, you know, get some fun conversations going, you know, respond to a couple of my friends who see it first. And then after that, I kind of have to piece out of the comments for my own well-being. Yes, yes, I get that. I think some of the best advice I got when I joined the cast of America's Test Kitchen was to not read the comments. Yeah. You know, some, I mean, every now and again, I might like, if I do some new sort of work and I just kind of want to gauge the feedback, you know, how people are feeling about it, I might visit the comments a little bit, but like you and probably like many other perfectly human people, you fixate on the five negative comments versus the 2005 positive comments, you know, just every time it's just without fail. Yeah, it's just how we're wired. But I, I think that your decision to see a post off, I love that. That's a very profound statement to see it off, to engage in it minimally um, to a point where you feel comfortable. Like the, I feel like I've done my due diligence for this post and then walking away from it. That is genius. That is the most radical self-care act because it's hard to walk away from social media when it's your work and a bit of your life. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to separate the two and to walk away from it. And you kind of became famous overnight. And I know that like your dad had some feelings about it, right? What has that been like in your soul, on your heart, you know, like internally, what has that felt like for you? 
It's hard talking to my dad in particular about all of this. It's hard for a myriad of reasons. Both of my parents are solidly baby boomers. So TikTok to them is just like, how dare you make me even begin to equate myself with this application? (laughs) My dad doesn't even have a Facebook. So, I mean, first things first, clearing the hurdle of explaining to him what was even going on. Yes, yes. (laughs) Was a fun challenge. And... To no one's surprise, I was a very theatrical child growing up. Even amidst my love of science and my love of math, I was always... I I used to joke that I was the loudest person in my science classes and the quietest person in my theater classes, Um, very much kind of towing that extrovert-introvert line IRL, which is, I know, hard to believe because I push extroverts so hard on all of my (laughs) social media And so my dad was excited because ever since I was little, he's just been like, oh, you're, you're going to do things. Mm -hmm. And I would never believe him. I would never believe him. I'd be like, no, dad, I actually don't think you know how unpopular I am at school. I think I'm just going to get a cool real people job and fade into the abyss like the rest of us. And so he feels like a little vindicated, but... He's usually one of the first people that I call whenever I get a lot of hate on a particular video. Recently, a white forager in the space tagged me in a video of his talking about like puffball mushrooms. And the speed with which this forager's followers wanted to believe that the video he was duetting was mine, even though he specified in the caption that he only tagged me because he used my hashtag. The amount of immediate hate that I started getting both on his posts and immediately onto my most recent posts. And one of the comments was, Black Forager dot dot dot, I knew something was up. And oh, I called my dad so fast, (laughs) just in tears, just being like, Dad! I'm laughing, but I was like, I was really hurt and torn up about it. Yeah, yeah. And this is a parent who was born into the mid-50s, was like a fully functioning, cognizant human being through the civil rights era, who still has to hear about his daughter getting bullied because of her race on the internet. So he worries. He lets me know a lot that he is worried, which I I appreciate because I know that that is 100% only the love that a parent can have for you. Alexis McCall, it has been a pleasure having you in the walk-in with me today. I hope that your father's listening and let him know that we got your back. We're not going to let anybody Aww. run up in here on ours. No, we're not. It's not what we're going to do. My dad has become big into podcasts, so I can't, I can't wait for him to hear this one. And this, what a joyous way to start my day, honestly. <laughs> oh, gosh, that makes my <laughs> Yes! Oh, sing it! Okay, Alexis, so tell us where we can find you in the social world and elsewhere, and then tell us what's happening next with you. Oh, absolutely. You can find me on the TikTok at Alexis Nicole, and that is N-I-K-O-L-E. Thank you, mother. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, 
Twitter at Black Forager. And if you live in Columbus, you can probably find me IRL bobbing around your neighborhood at some point in time with garden shears. I don't know. If you look out your window for long enough, you'll see me. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you. We'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real and unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, L. Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Hen Margolis. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Caroline Rickert, and Yumi Araki. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Additional engineering by Samantha Gatsik. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Escoffier and Samuel Adams. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.